0: Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering, much to my delight, Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 1. Stranger Things Season 3 came out in July 2019, even longer ago than I had realized when I sat down to watch this first episode of Season 4. It was a whole pandemic ago, and honestly, I was a little worried about this season on two fronts. A, that the pandemic was going to fundamentally change the trajectory of the show the way so many good shows were forever altered or outright canned by the writers' strike 15 years ago. Or B, that the long wait demanded by a pandemic-safe filming schedule would mean losing interest in the show by the time more episodes finally arrive. To my relief, I am deeply excited about Stranger Things Season 4, in spite of both the long wait for it, and my hints of worry when it comes to some of the spoilers forced on me by certain sadly unavoidable promotional material. I, unlike some fans, have loved this show more with every new season, 3 being my favorite, which I think puts me in a very small minority, and I'm in a happy state of excited wondering about whether Season 4 could possibly top what we've seen so far. I still don't know if that's going to happen. The introduction of a humanoid villain who can speak certainly gives me pause, but I find this season's opening as charming as it is promising. So let's get into this we open, unfortunately, with a warning from Netflix. As I write this, it has been one week and one day since the Robb Elementary School shooting in Texas, and given that this show opens with an apparent flashback to many mangled, bloodied, lifeless child corpses, Netflix felt obligated to offer condolences and to provide a content warning. I don't know that it's strictly necessary, the show does not depict a school shooting, not like how Buffy's earshot had to be rescheduled back in 1999 because of the Columbine shooting, but it's an interesting look at how content warnings and trigger warnings might evolve as our media does. We always get the typical here's why the show's rated what it's rated up in the corner at the start of an episode on Netflix, but those warnings are vague, unapologetic, and frankly unhelpful. Nudity, they'll sometimes say, or smoking, or even something entirely useless like fear. This show includes fear is not a helpful or sane warning, but this show could be triggering given that 19 school children were gunned down three days ago. Well, it's interesting that we've come to this point, to say the least. I truly wonder where we're going to go from here. But on to the scene in question. If I am to have one true doubt about this season going forward, it comes in this scene. Because we are in apparent flashback. Matthew Modine's character, Dr. Brenner, once called Papa by Eleven, is alive and well and still working at what appears to be the Hawkins lab. And this is Dr. Brenner as we've never seen him before. In the past, his attempts to present himself as a fatherly figure ran incredibly false. He was an unambiguous villain. He was involved in stealing Eleven from her mother, in covering up Eleven's existence and in faking her stillbirth, in permanently disabling Eleven's mother when she tried to get real answers, in emotionally torturing Eleven and who knows how many other children like her and in pushing Eleven and the other children in the program to physically endanger themselves by using their powers. He was a fundamentally abusive man who would have definitely deserved his death at the hands of the Demogorgon way back in Season 1. But Season 2 delivered ambiguity as to whether or not he had truly died, and his appearance in the prologue to this season further implies that he is going to play a role in the narrative going forward. Far worse, though, is that what happens in this scene attempts to cast him in a different light than we've ever seen him in before. The exact date of the prologue is unknown, but it's definitely before the Demogorgon catastrophe and Brenner is working at the Hawkins lab. But what he's not doing is acting like the manipulative false father figure he was to Elle. No, Brenner, as we see him here, is trying to strike a balance between using children as lab rats and providing them with a childhood. They're not being properly nurtured based off what we see, no. Of note, they're not being given anything resembling bodily autonomy. They are being forced into conformity, denied the right to showcase their individuality with clothing choices or hair choices. And while they do have a playroom not entirely devoid of cheer, it's clear that their play is primarily work or training. These children aren't being nurtured for the sake of their future lives. being nurtured the way one might nurture a sled dog or a racehorse. They don't lack entirely for stimulation or affection, but they aren't exactly living full lives either. If anything, at best, they're being treated as soldiers, not kids. But Brenner is being played compassionately here. When he sits down with a new to the audience child, boy numbered 10, he is friendly and kind and asks if the kid is up for some more lessons in a voice that implies a no might have actually been accepted. He draws pictures for the boy to try to catch clairvoyant glimpses of, he smiles and laughs and makes jokes about how awful his drawing ability is, and later when things start to go wrong he acts concerned for both his colleagues and the children in his care. And, when he reawakens from a head injury to find almost everyone in the program murdered, he cradles Ten's corpse and looks like he's about to cry. He is horrified and shocked and seemingly traumatized by the scattered corpses, and he seeks out the monster behind Massacre. And that monster is Elle. His voice changes as he confronts her. It hardens and goes cold. He appears to change as he sees her standing there, bloodied and unblinking, apparently guilty and unapologetic about it. The implication being, I fear, that whatever happened here, whatever L supposedly did to these people, is the reason that L got manipulative, emotionally cruel treatment from him instead of the seemingly far kinder treatment that he offered Ten pre-massacre. And I hate that. Let's be very clear here. Brenner is a villain. Period. Brenner is a villain because of the murders and the maiming that he's been involved in, and because he was the driving force behind accidentally unleashing the upside down. But even if he hadn't done any of that shit to Eleven's mom or the various townspeople that tried to help Eleven when she ran away, or anything else, Brenner would be a villain because he abused Eleven. He abused a tiny, helpless little girl who had no choice but to rely on him and to love him as a father figure, and he is absolute, irredeemable trash for that. But if this prolonged scene turns out to be genuine, if it's not some kind of a misdirect or a dream or, I don't know, a purgatory that he's caught in, then the implication is that Dr. Brenner abused Eleven because Eleven earned that treatment from him. He was a good man. And then a tiny little girl did something egregiously wrong, and so he abused the little girl. And you can get the fuck out of my face with that bullshit. If this scene is a genuine flashback without some other nuance or a missing puzzle piece, I'm gonna be fucking pissed, I gotta be honest. So, after the opening credits, which totally spoil that Hopper is still alive by the way, we find ourselves with modern day Elle. Her chipper, very babysitter's club voiceover reintroduces us all to our cast, but there are enough cracks in the facade for the viewer to read between the lines. Things are not going as well for Eleven as she implies. She's being bullied at school, and of course she is. It's long before any hardcore anti-bullying campaigns made it into public schools, deep in the era of suck it up and social Darwinism, and Eleven reads as an outcast immediately. She has styled herself not as a typical teen girl of the mid to late 80s the way she did last season, but now as a mini Joyce, and as adorable as I find that, it means she stands out visibly from her classmates. And she stands out in personality too. She has all the energy of an until recently homeschooled kid attempting a public school life for the first time. She just doesn't get things the way the other kids do, because she doesn't have the experiences that they do. And she spends a lot of her time on screen in this episode right on the brink of tears. And as someone who had a really hard time at high school myself, I've gotta admit, seeing her trapped at a high school and right on the brink of sobbing was really fucking triggering. If I have to watch too much more of that, you're gonna catch my ass crying too. But all is not perfectly well with everyone else, either. Joyce's work-from-home job isn't quite what Elle seems to think it is, though the huge house they seem to have found for themselves certainly implies they're not in financial dire straits. As for the boys, Jonathan is morphing into a stoner, trying to avoid actually addressing his relationship with Nancy, and Will is, quote, "...acting weird and might have a crush on someone," though I fear the Duffer brothers may lack the nerve to actually commit to him coming out as some shade of queer. All of the buyer's problems, though, seem pretty surmountable at the end of things, especially in comparison to the conga line of humiliation that Elle endures in this episode, not to mention the obvious PTSD that we'll soon learn Max's suffering cut to Hawkins. While it's clear that Millie Bobby Brown has grown up, it is nothing compared to the freight train of puberty that all the boys got hit with. Noah Schnapp could honestly pass for older than he actually is, Finn Wolfhard is a whole-ass adult man now and I don't know how that happened, and Caleb McLaughlin bulked the fuck up. It is hilarious to me that these boys are supposed to be passing for 14. 14-year-olds are infants, but even Millie looks at least 16, and among the boys, only Gatton Matarazzo hasn't gone through some wild aging. And unfortunately, to try to keep up the illusion that these adults are still children, the so-called teenagers around them are all being played by people who look, and almost all are almost thirty. Like, I can tell that Eddie and Argyle and Jason are all being played by men my age. No one is fooled here, and it's honestly kinda gross. But after checking in on Mike and Nancy and Dustin, we get to who I really care about robin and steve my precious babies steve has apparently regained his romantic prowess and robin has her eyes on a cute girl in the marching band who is hopefully queer i hope that works out for her because i love robin and i want her to be happy and well i'll save my shipping preferences for once i know more about what the fuck is going on with jonathan and nancy but i just love robin and steve's relationship so much and if steve doesn't get something interesting soon i'm gonna start leaning into some kind of a queer platonic robin and steve thing as part of like a larger polycule with this new girl that robin's into and you're not going to be able to stop me. You're just not. But at the school, a pep rally is underway and the cheer squad stars one of our new main characters. At least I think she is. Maybe not based off the end of the episode. But her name is Chrissy Cunningham and there's something vaguely scar about her, which of course means that she's the queen bee of the school. But she, like the rest of our sympathetic female characters, is going through something upside down related. And while we don't quite know what that is just yet, it is obviously nothing good. It does look fairly lethal, in fact, but we'll get to that later. First, we have to watch this obviously-30 basketball captain attempt to appropriate the pain of last summer's loss for school spirit and basketball ambition. And it is skin-crawlingly disgusting. Very high school, yes, but that doesn't make it any less painful for Max, whose life has wholly fallen apart since her stepbrother's death. Yes, he was a truly unforgivable, abusive, racist teenager whose loss is genuinely not a negative for the world at large, but he was still a part of Max's family, and the severance of that familial connection is going to sting even if it's in the long run better for her quality of life especially because right now, she has not yet reached the long run. It's probably only six months or so out from his death, and Max finds herself in pretty dire straits. Her stepfather ran out on the family, her mother is drinking herself to death to numb the pain, her only female friend moved across the country, She broke up with her boyfriend, and she's having to shoulder more weight than any girl should at her age. And on top of her obligations and what she takes on in her empathy and the blatantly obvious PTSD she's suffering, she also has to stave off the irksome probing of her admittedly gorgeous and well-intentioned, but definitely clueless and none too helpful guidance counselor. After the pep rally, we find Lucas and Mike and Dustin talking about their big climactic D&D session, which Lucas will have to miss because it's at the same time as the final basketball game of the season. Everyone is trying to convince everyone else of their own side's righteousness, and it's a lovely scene because no one's unreasonable and no one is wrong. Everyone's just being a tad bit selfish and less than perfectly empathetic in a very real human way, and Lucas comes away from it the best of them, I think. It's a far cry from his abrasiveness back in Season 1. Here, he is pulling away from the group because he's in reasonable, understandable, very common teen pain. He's sick of being bullied. He's got an in when it comes to climbing the social hierarchy of the school, and he's got a fun skill that he enjoys flexing. I could never begin to care about basketball, but I love that it's what Lucas chooses here. He doesn't let his friends guilt him into the D&D game instead of his obligations to his team, and it's a lovely sign that Lucas is growing up. Of all the boys, he has probably matured the most. Though, we haven't yet examined Will much this season, so we'll see where he's at before I say anything definitive on that front. But back in California, Joyce gets a very ominous package in the mail. Instead of the college acceptance letters that she's hoping to find, she instead brings into her home an enormous box covered in far too many hammer and sigil stamps. One is too many, honestly, but this is ridiculous. She opens it in trepidation and finds inside it a doll. A doll in traditional Russian garb, and in case you're a complete moron and somehow miss that this doll and those stamps and this package is obviously Russian, the clumsy musical cue is here to help you out. It's honestly a hilarious musical choice, almost as funny as the lingering shot of Winona Ryder making worried and confused faces at this doll. It's not like Winona at the Sag Awards funny, but this girl and her faces are just chef's kiss. Cut to the school. Will and Elle are in the same history class, which is nice, but it does nothing to temper the humiliation that Elle is about to endure at the hands of this stereotypical mean girl with awful hair. Like... Seriously, how about you deal with what's happening on your own head before you try shaming anyone else? Or, hey, here's a thought. Learn from that bullshit line you gave in your own project about Helen Keller changing how the world perceives those with disabilities and grow some fucking compassion. It could not be more obvious that Elle is in some way vulnerable. It's not a disability, sure, but they don't know that. And instead of using it as an opportunity to practice kindness and empathy, they descend upon the most vulnerable member of the herd like a pack of hyenas. And it's not a pretty sight. The teacher of course does nothing try to help l who is clearly about to burst into tears in front of the class before little miss bad bleach job even opens her mouth and lest you believe that this is inauthentic trust me it is not we like to talk a lot in america about all the good that teachers do especially in the context of how little they are paid but believe me some of them do a whole hell of a lot of harm too because i have been this girl before I have been Elle in this scene. I've been the girl trying to give a presentation in front of the class, about to burst into tears in front of everyone because someone is needling, bullying, or outright mocking them. Except when it was me standing in a push being humiliated, I was being mocked by the teacher himself. So, as we cut away from Elle walking down the hall and crying, a position I've been in, we cut to an emotionally numb Max in her own school's hallway, trying to dissociate from her PTSD and her awful home life, which is another position I've been in. There's a moment here, a moment when she passes Chrissy in the hall as one of them is arriving at and the other is leaving the counselor's office, and Chrissy is hiding her pain a bit more deftly than Elle, but far less successfully than Max. Chrissy is clearly going through something, though at this point in the episode, we have no idea what, and the rest of the episode clarifies things only a little bit for me. Now, the Max and the counselor scene is awful in a very real-world kind of way. The counselor means well, she really does, she's really trying, but she's placing the outcome of these sessions at Max's feet, as if Max is doing something wrong by not opening up to her spontaneously, and as if it's not the counselor's literal job to coax Max into feeling safe and supported enough to open up. Worse, the counselor doesn't appear to be picking up on the subtext of what Max is saying about her stepdad. If it's better that he's abandoned the family than that he's stuck around That implies behavior much worse than the assholery that Max reports. Stop asking her how she's sleeping and accusing her of not being truthful and forcing her to mask her pain to placate you, and do your fucking job. Talk to her about her hobbies, ask about her friends or her favorite class. Hell, ask what fucking song she's listening to when she would clearly rather listen to whatever's on her Walkman than whatever is coming out of your mouth. Like that could be the session itself. She's trying to dissociate with music, so start bonding with her over that. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that sometimes, when someone is in this much pain, you have to meet them more than halfway. Honestly, to put another point in the Lucas' growing up to be a legit good man column, he does a better job trying to empathetically connect to Max than the counselor does, He offers her a free ticket to his basketball game. He talks to her about the possibility of getting involved in a hobby of some kind. And he emphasizes that his care for her doesn't come from being an ex-boyfriend. It comes from being her friend. And that's a far cry from the teenage toxic, let's play mind games relationship that these two were engaged in last season. He's clumsy about everything that he says, sure, but it's not like he's trained to do this. And for someone with no real idea of what they're doing, he does a damn good job. But in the bathroom, we find two girls in distress. Max is one of them, and she's taking Tylenol, hopefully for something like a headache and not because she's trying to abuse it, because spoilers, that's not really a thing. And then there's Chrissy in a stall, vomiting into a toilet. Now, I'll be honest, when I see a teen girl somehow connected to a monster throwing up into a toilet and trying to hide it, my immediate fear is the most obvious one. Is Chrissy pregnant? Given that she appears to die at the end of this episode, I assume that's not going to be it, but there's an ongoing through line in this show of things being brought into our world from the upside down, and what more literal way to bring something into the world is there than via pregnancy and childbirth? Honestly, it's just that you never see women throw up on TV unless they're about to have a baby, usually a dangerous one that they don't want. But when Max leaves, we find that something really horrible is going on with Chrissy, something really really horrible. She's hallucinating her mom's voice, a pounding on the stall door, and monstrous feet beneath the gap, all accompanied by a very familiar flickering of the lights. Whatever is up with Chrissy, it's got something to do with the upside down, and that is incredibly intriguing. As far as I'm aware, Chrissy is wholly new to this season. I don't recognize her face or her name as something we've seen or heard before, nor do I recognize her parents' faces or voices. She's obviously tied into the larger supernatural story somehow, especially given that a very upside-down-ish monster is coming after her, specifically. But I cannot possibly fathom how she is involved, and I'm kind of worried that it could have something to do with Billy." But for now, we're back to our boys. They're dealing with a group of D&D nerds whose casting is all very reminiscent of Jason Earls and Hannah Montana. And I honestly think the costuming here is doing the actors no favors. Joseph Quinn might not look quite so old if he wasn't wearing what looks like the world's worst wig and clothes I don't at all associate with teens of any era. Because, to be honest, he's only like three months older than me, and yet he could pass for 40 here. It's not good. Also not good is the vibe he's bringing to the show. He's perhaps the most authentic portrayal of the outcast I've ever seen in media. He's not some misunderstood, sympathetic underdog. He's not getting the Jonathan in season one treatment. and he is fucking annoying. He's disliked by the other students because so much of his personality, or how he presents it at least, is unlikable. He harasses people for shits and giggles and has made nobody likes me his primary personality trait. And while I get that impulse, you have to wear whatever armor you can get, honestly, especially while you're still in high school, it doesn't mean that he doesn't fucking suck. Especially when there's an implication throughout many of his scenes that there is more to him than being an annoying jackass if only someone or something could get him to show it. And it doesn't help that most of the rest of his little posse looks even older than he does. Like. These fuckers look weathered. What is happening? Who approved of this? Side note, though, Gatton Matarazzo's little Jesus Christ when Eddie throws some shit at him is such a hilariously perfect line reading, and I just fucking love Dustin when he is given room to shine. Speaking of shining, though, Joyce calls on a friend's help on the whole weird Russian doll front, and yes, on that note, I will be watching season 2 of Russian Doll ASAP, Never You Fear. To my mild disappointment, it's not Mr. Clark who she calls. To my pleasure, it is instead Murray, Joyce's other not-boyfriend, and he is every bit the funny bitch he was before, making his presence very much appreciated. Between you and me, I don't miss Hopper for a second, but I do so long for more Joyce and Murray scenes. Can we have Joyce and Murray and Mr. Clark all be best friends, please? Because that sounds like a ton of fun, to be honest. On to Nancy and Jonathan drama, and I've gotta admit, Season 3 killed their relationship for me. Just break the fuck up already, y'all are tiresome. If you want to make yourselves interesting to me again, please thruple up with Steve. Otherwise, get out of the way and make room for something I actually want to watch, though honorable mentions go to both Jonathan's friend's awesome fucking hair, and Nancy's squirrely nerd friend who looks like one strong breeze would blow him away. I don't really want more of either of them in the story, but I don't hate that they're very briefly here. As for the montage that comes after, the one in which Mike and Dustin are trying to find someone to replace Lucas in the Hellfire Club game, the highlight is easily Max lighting up at the chance to playfully mock Dustin's attempt to recruit her. It is so easy to see Sadie Singh having fun there. So easy, in fact, that one almost forgets that Max is wholly mired in depression right now. Honestly, I almost wish Dustin had somehow managed to convince her to join him. I'm not complaining about who they get instead, I fully laughed my ass off, and I wouldn't give up that reveal for anything in the world. But I feel like it would have been really good for Max to hang out more with Dustin. Cut to Chrissy. She's out in the woods with Eddie, and it's our first hint that there's more to him than annoying jerk. But given that I don't yet really care about either of these characters, I do fear the scene goes on a bit too long. Chrissy is hallucinated again, and she's trying to get her hands on drugs to cope. First, she wants weed, but then she brings up the idea of something harder, which turns out to be ketamine. And, um... No. She's not in the right headspace for either, thank you, but especially not the latter. You're definitely not supposed to take ketamine if you're already experiencing delusions and hallucinations. You could literally trigger a full-blown psychotic break if you're unlucky. And Chrissy is nothing if not unlucky in this episode. On Eddie's part, he is almost endearing when he's being, you know, calm and compassionate and trying to connect with and comfort Chrissy, but his manic energy is just very high school and it's an awful fucking lot. Like, I am getting stressed and feeling drained just watching him. Being around him would leave me with nothing. This boy would drain me fucking dry. Eleven, meanwhile, gets a very stereotypical bullying scene after class, being tripped and mocked by Queen Bleach from earlier. But let's forget the stereotype for a moment, because that's not the important part. What's important here isn't what's happening too Elle; it's that she's powerless. She is humiliated and overwhelmed, and when she reaches her breaking point, she just has nothing. She reaches for her powers instinctively, drawing on her anger to protect herself the way a wild animal does when it's backed into a corner. But she's been robbed of her power, both literally and figuratively, and trying to flex her psychic muscles manages to do no more than turn a small public humiliation into an enormous one. People were watching before, but there were more gasps than jeers, until she made a spectacle of herself. And... Well, I look forward to seeing what's going on with Will this season, because I'm going to need some good explanation for why he stood on the sidelines instead of rushing to his quasi-sister's aid. Unless he's dealing with something pretty paralyzing of his own, I am seriously side-eyeing his, oh, I'll just comfort her afterward attitude. I just really wanted these two to be incredibly close this season, in literally any capacity. New best friends, brother-sister, romantic tension, literally anything. I do find a certain promise in the potential foreshadowing of the aftermath scene, though. Elle holds the broken Hopper figurine in her hand and Will promises that they will fix it together. And if that means that Will and Elle are going to team up to get Hopper back… well, I'm honestly in the extreme minority in that I don't really want Hopper back, but I sure as fuck want an awesome Will and Elle team up under whatever circumstances I can get it. As for the teacher bless her heart for finally doing something even if it's not much the bar is so low when it comes to tv adults that it's fully in hell but this lady manages to clear it slightly though l doesn't rat out angela the teacher immediately knows who the fuck is behind this mess and good on l for not lying on angela's behalf when the little brat is marched away Back to Joyce. Still on the phone with Murray, she is rigging up a way to smash the doll safely without potentially getting blown up by whatever is inside of it. And Murray's panic when she drops the phone is so over the top that it's funny, until you remember that he watched Alexi get murdered right in front of him with no warning last season. And he's definitely traumatized by the experience. And, um, well, we'll see how I feel about things as the rest of the season shapes up, but I think I might ship Joyce and Murray. I'm not proud of that impulse, but there it is. At the basketball game, Lucas is finally off the bench, Steve is on a date, and Robin almost accidentally outs herself to her crush under, you know, less than ideal circumstances. Also, during the anthem, Lucas is standing next to some hot dude who I don't think gets a name, and that's not important, but I just thought I'd point it out but forget about him, because Erica is here. I have no idea how the fuck I didn't see this coming, though to be fair, I missed the middle school sign earlier, which should have given it away, but it's a goddamn delight to see her in these circumstances. I didn't really expect her to have much to do this season, if anything at all, given that she's not the same age as the bulk of the cast, but I laughed my ass off when she walked onto screen behind Mike and Dustin, like I was fully knee slapping like some kind of an old man. That shit got me good. And speaking of how good Erica is, she's apparently also really talented at D&D or something? I honestly have no fucking clue how this game works, but I guess she's gotten into and good at it off-screen, despite a big part of her characterization previously being that she bullies her brother for being a dork? Maybe she decided to take up D&D when he joined the basketball team, just to make sure their dynamic stayed balanced. In any case, it sets up this lovely parallel moment between Lucas and his sister, In an extended slow-motion sequence, which unfortunately involves Eddie doing a thing with his head that makes him look like one of the fieries from Labyrinth, Lucas scores to win his big game, and Erica rolls a 20, which even my uninformed ass knows is the best possible outcome for a dice roll. After the game, we find Max and her mother living in a trailer park across from Eddie, who is taking Chrissy home. The vibe in this scene is more ominous than warranted by Max's mom's shitty excuse for parenting, and it's very clear from pretty early in the scene that either Chrissy is in danger from Eddie, or Eddie is in danger from Chrissy. And in a deft, subversion of tropey expectations, it is Chrissy who kind of brings the danger to this situation. While Eddie busies himself trying to track down his ketamine stash, Chrissy falls into something even worse than a K-hole. It's the upside-down, one assumes, but it's all inside her mind, I guess? Eddie sees her standing in the middle of his living room, upright but frozen, with her eyelids flickering like she's lost in a dream. And she is... Except it's not actually a dream. It's a nightmare, yes, but it's real, even if it is only inside her mind. And her mom is there, dead and distorted, as is her dad. And something humanoid, but vaguely squid-like, that tracks her down and tells her it will end her suffering. Who or what this is, and how it's connected to her, is anyone's guess. But there's a certain spider motif going on, and there's a portrait showing what I assume is Chrissy's as-yet-unseen sibling, so perhaps they're involved somehow? Whatever this is, though, it doesn't end Chrissy's suffering, or at least not before making it a whole hell of a lot worse. In reality, Eddie panics and screams in Chrissy's face as the lights flicker, proving that he's definitely not the person you want to be around if you ever accidentally overdose, and within her mind, Chrissy is seized by the weird, wet, growling monster stalking her. I don't know how I feel about him right now, and I won't know until I know what the fuck or possibly who the fuck he is, not to mention his motive. Again, time for your suffering to end and all that, but that ending apparently involves Chrissy's body floating up to the ceiling where all her limbs begin to bend and snap while her jaw breaks and her eyes bleed and then her eye sockets collapse. It's, um, it's really fucking gruesome. It's far worse than anything else the show has done so far, at least as far as I can remember, and there's no shame on Eddie for screaming his goddamn head off. That is very much the right response. But that's where the episode ends. I have no idea what happens from there. As I implied before, I assume that whatever has just happened to Chrissy spells serious danger for Eddie, too. Otherwise, the narrative purpose it serves is to draw him into the supernatural goings-on, and... Well, I can't pretend I'm thrilled about the prospect of him being a large part of the season's plot, but I'll accept it if I must. In any case, there's our episode, and oh boy, was it a hard watch. A fun one, yes, but only by virtue of familiarity. It felt rather like being reunited with an old friend after a few years apart, but it hit the ground running, that's for sure, and everyone is suffering here. Chrissy appears to be gone almost as soon as she was introduced, Nancy and Jonathan continue to be boring, and both Elle and Max are fucking going through it, I hope we get some silver linings on the storm cloud that I'm sure this season's going to be, that is for sure, but all in all, I am really excited to get further into this season and see if it holds up to all of my incredibly high expectations and hopes and dreams. I'm going to be very disappointed if it doesn't, but I suppose even if worse comes to worst, I'll always have season three. So, what I am doing this week is that I am going to, over this week and the next, sit down and watch one episode of this show per day. I sit down to watch the show in the morning, I record the reaction video, I write the podcast script, I record the podcast. So I'm not quite binging, but I am going to, you know, get through the show fairly quickly and I'm really excited. Like I said, um, you know, I'm not thrilled about some of the things that I, you know, some of the initial first impressions, the perceptions that I have about the show especially based on some of the promotional re- materials that were released. Um I don't know I'm a bit worried about how this show is going to shape up, especially because of how much I loved season three. Season three was such a high for me that there's a long way it could fall, even if it's not as good as season three. I don't know if, you know, that's going to mean that it feels a bit like a disappointment, even if it's actually really good. It's just it didn't hit quite that high. Or if, you know, even at its worst, maybe Stranger Things is still phenomenal. I don't know. But First episode one of nine we have seven to watch now and we will get two more in july as far as i'm aware and that is a lot of space to tell a lot of story um i believe the episodes are longer this season and so you know i am really excited i i can't wait to find out what it all is going to happen i really hope everything is going to turn out to be satisfying and if nothing else like i said i'm kind of just happy to see all my favorite characters again i have very few shows anymore that i am invested in this might be the only one no umbrella academy this and umbrella academy are the only two and um both of these are being released almost back to back so i'm very excited i'm i'm just this is a good month for me So with all of that said, I'm going to be back again next week with my coverage of Episode 2. If you are interested in my reaction videos to this series and every other series I've covered so far, those are available to $5 patrons. If you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching after I get through this slew of great stuff that's being released this month, you can join me over on Patreon for $1, $1 patrons and up, of course, get access to my polls determining what it is that I watch. Um, If you are not interested in either one of those tiers, you can always tell me about what what it is that you would like to find on the Patreon, and I will always consider those, you know, opinions. Um, And if you are not interested in Patreon, period, at all, that is perfectly fine. No hard feelings. You may be interested in leaving a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice. That helps very much and is very much appreciated. Alternately, you could talk about the show on social media or recommend it to a friend. Other than that, though, I really appreciate just that you're showing up and listening. Like I said, I'll be back next week. I hope you will join me then as well. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Alternately, you could talk about the friend. Talk about the friend. Are you high?